Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. It's episode 439 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Steve Hollis of Noisyhead Games and ask them about the design and development of their twin-stick shooter action-adventure game Beyond the Long Night. Seeking out the unknown, looking at things or being given hints about things that might be a little bit discordant, a little bit strange, and being encouraged to go rather than run away from the unknown, but to embrace it, that's something Beyond the Long Night really embraces and encourages and sort of pokes at the stick or maybe a balloon. Can you poke things with a balloon? Probably not. Anyway, what am I talking about balloons? Well, the main character in Beyond the Long Night is a little man floating around with balloons above them. Very strange, fascinating. Also, it's fascinating is discussion I have with Steve about the creation of this very unique and wonderful game. So you probably want to listen to that very conversation, don't you? Not listen to me monologue about it. So let's let's, let's do that, shall we? Chris, from the relatively recent past, please do take it away. Hello, Steve. Hello, Chris. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. We are looking at some cameras and stuff, but you can't see it, everyone. It's all, it's all audio. It's fine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Could about you? That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you tell us who you are, what you do? Um, so I am uh, the lead developer um, in a very, very small studio called uh, Noisy Head Games, um, and I am working on a charming twin-stick action roguelike adventure called Beyond the Long Night. Steve, indeed, isn't that doing that very thing, which is why he's here to talk all about it, everyone. But before we do that, I need to know a little bit more about Steve and his 
and his work and where he comes from. So, how did you make a start making flashy, lighty video games? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I got to making games pretty late in life, I think, actually. Um, so, as a... As a budding university student, I, I always wanted to be a composer, I think. Um, and I've always been one of these people who um, did a lot of music and a lot of like um, creative things when going through school, like drama and stuff like that. And my parents were on the side being like, yeah, but you should probably do some like more mathsy stuff and some more physicsy stuff because, um, you know, um, to try and get you to learn to get a job in something that's a little bit more practical, maybe. Um, so I kind of went to uni doing a bit of a compromise course, which was um, music technology and electronics. Um, so kind of a big blend between um, techie and creativity. But my heart was always set on doing um kind of the creative side and and doing um composing and i think it was like about second year of uni that i i kind of realized that this pastime that i was doing all the time and had done since i was like really young since i was like 8 which was gaming and stuff that really was the combination of those two things so when i got into like my second year of uni i started trying to learn coding and and thinking, well, maybe I can do music for games and stuff instead. Um, kind of fast forward a couple of years, I, I was out of uni and um, kind of wanting a job in the, the games industry. And I think I got um, extremely lucky, to be honest. Um, I, I applied around a few places, but one place that I applied to was um, Frontier Developments. Um, and managed to get an interview there despite being a pretty terrible coder, um, but I managed to get an interview there and went and did the programming test, did horribly on the programming test, but I think the the head of audio there just really took a shine to me. Um, and the, um, one thing led to another and they offered me a job and I started working on Elite Dangerous in 2014. Um, I annoyed a lot of my colleagues for a few months of just how bad at coding I was, but I kind of stuck at it and learned it. Um, and then, yeah, over the course of six years, I, I worked on a, a bunch of games there from... Um, Planet Zoo to Planet Coaster to Jurassic World Evolution. Um, and then in 2019, about the very end of that, decided that um, it was time to do the whole hog and, and try indie, really. And that's kind of where I am now. And here you are. So and here it's I quite, am. Quite, an interesting, quite an interesting story there. You, you started to like, forge your path as regards to music and coding and found mm. that maybe you know you could do both and it does yeah. answer some some of our later questions about uh, beyond the, the long night there's one particular one but we'll, we'll hold off to the second half before i delve into that mm -hmm. but thanks for the hint I appreciate it. <laughs> it's no problem next question then what are your biggest influences as a creator of things 
Of things, okay. Um, of video games, principally, but anything else, but yeah. principally, what what are your biggest? What's the thing you find yourself orbiting, whether you like it or not? I do tend to take inspiration from lots of different media. So whether that is from um, from games or from films, um, it, from lots of different kind of genres. Um, you know, as as a gamer. Um, the the main kind of genres that I tend to gravitate to are ones with exploration in them. Um, you know, whether that is from puzzle mechanics or whether that's like an adventure game. Um, I've always... Games that have discovery in them have always kind of like really scratched a certain itch for me. Um, and then in terms of like other media, I just kind of like weird stuff. Um, I like ones where, um, you know, there's kind of aspects of a film or like a higher power that the the members or the cast of, of that medium don't really understand fully. Um, you know, there's a there's a great film called um, Annihilation, um, which has been a big influence on me for, for a long time and... Um, there's kind of a scene at the end of Annihilation where, um, you know, the, the, they kind of discover something and it just goes all kind of strange and weird things happen. Um, and at the end of it, they, they kind of turn to the, the people at the end of the film and, and they ask them sort of like so what did you see and the the answer is that they have no idea whatsoever and i've I've, i don't know i've always just really loved those kind of moments in in film and stuff yeah i'm i'm yeah i'm sorry i don't feel like that's a very good answer (laughs) no it's a fantastic answer because it actually links quite closely Mm. to what um beyond the long light is about in many Mm. regards it's almost as if it's like it's, it's foreboding you're really yes. good at this. He's done it twice now, everyone. He's done it twice. You'll see in a moment when I start asking the questions. But anyway, mm. next one. This one's even more difficult. I didn't. Really, I should have warned you, but these questions get worse and worse. It's like a mini boss. In the right, it's amazing. Fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so the next question is: What video game developer do you admire most, and why? Hmm. And it can be a person or a company, more than one. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just have a huge amount of respect for anybody who has has done it solo in particular. Um I think as a as a journey in indie game development is is quite turbulent at times. Um and there's there's a lot going on and a lot for you to kind of keep track of, both kind of in terms of the work and just emotionally. So um you know, there's I think anyone who has like tried to do this journey should be pretty proud of themselves because it is an, an an insane journey to jump on really. Um, you know, some some big kind of names obviously jump out like people like Toby Fox from from Undertale um and um you know, I I'm a big fan of games like Fez um and uh Full Fish and just also like just going on back onto music things like pretty much anything that disaster piece writes is just gold dust to me i've I've always kind of admired their work um and then 
yeah like that there's just there's there's so many games and i i i think it's it's hard to distill it down to like a, a few solid people i think just like if you've done this then it, like no matter how it's kind of ended at the other side like it it shouldn't really be reserved just for the people who've who've done gangbusters out of it you know it's it's an insane journey to jump onto and yeah people should be incredibly incredibly proud for the work that they've done really um so hats off to you game developers i think you've done really well <laughs> absolutely absolutely good 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 answer but yeah rather than, rather than the usual suspects to be well, magnanimous in game, yeah. Even you, yeah. Think you know. of the small people as well. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. they put a lot yeah. into this. You do. So, last question of the first half. Here he is. Mm-hmm. What are you playing right now? Oh, okay. Um, so, um, I kind of have two lots of games i guess going on at the same time um i'm I'm historically a a single player kind of person always have been when growing up but um i think the pandemic um forced me to start playing with other people if i wanted to see anyone else um as well so i've been playing a lot of multiplayer things recently um not to plug the publisher too much but i've been playing plate up quite a lot recently um with a with a group of friends which is published by yogs cast games um which is a a a very good game i I tend to play it um as uh, a very sleepy man after work which usually means that i take up um very menial tasks like chopping lettuce for for the whole group um and then slowly over the course of of the game my my job gets automated and and taken away from me which is um i don't know it's maybe uh there's some sort of social commentary in that i don't know but it's more, more foreboding but yeah so i've been playing that um and then like some uh cooperative horror games and stuff as well with friends like i play a lot of dead by daylight and um uh phasmophobia as well um and then on my own time i've kind of been in cycling through some some indies a bit more so um the last game that i played which made a, a really big impression on me was i'm probably gonna butcher the name but it's called like taish or taiji or something like that it's a puzzle game um i think it was um funded by indie fund um and it's like a 2d witness um really and it's just absolutely fantastic um yeah i can't praise it enough really um so i've been playing that um a bit of ship of fools recently as well for some ship fairing roguelike action um and then eastward as well so i've got quite a few things on the go at the moment um so yeah nicely done recent months we've had just the proximity of it people said oh, i'm just waiting for the next zelda <laughs> yeah well just, yeah, yeah yeah just filling the void there's like, loads of okay. things there's loads I know. of things out it's like, there come on people come on <laughs> good so let's move on to the second half of the show where we're going to be delving deep pun intended 
to Beyond the Long Night. So, the first question is this. Steve, please tell us, what is Beyond the Long Night? Uh, so Beyond the Long Night is a, a charming twin-stick action roguelike where you are trying to escape um, a deadly, mysterious, corrupting red force um, and outrun it to escape from this subterranean kingdom to a promised land called the Overworld. Um, it's a roguelike, so when you die, you have to start again from the beginning. Um, it's pretty difficult as well, um, but it also has um, lots of kind of chill music, um, lovable characters, um, crazy combinations of upgrades and uh, special abilities that you can kind of mash together um, to try and make it through this run. Um, for me, the game is primarily about exploration and, and discovering stuff. Um, so there's um, kind of a lot of mechanics um, where y you as a player will kind of stumble across either a puzzle or a environmental hazard or an enemy which might seem extremely difficult at the start when you first encounter it but the more you play the more you'll kind of learn the kind of the 
the ways that these things kind of tick um, and the easier it becomes to get past them and to kind of get further on in your journey. Um, and you know, the, the game's in inspired by lots of different places, uh, sorry, takes inspiration from lots of different places. Um, one key inspiration for the game is weirdly the Outer Wilds. Um, and uh, there's what I basically describe as a secret path through the game, um, which is kind of a, a collection of puzzles that you can kind of encounter um, on any singular run that you play. Um, and kind of the overarching goal of the game is not only just to try and get to the top of this uh, this map, but it's also to kind of find these puzzle pieces, put them together, um, and discover this secret path which leads you to the game's true ending. Wow, that was quite an answer. <laughs> and it, uh, it hints at, again, more foreboding. Steve, you're really good at this. <laughs> We're heaping it on. <laughs> yeah, might call this episode foreboding. Yeah. Um, it's weird to so... say, though, for, for foreboding, because it's a game about, uh, I don't know if I said in the first, first thing, you're a little guy with balloons. On you are. It, talking you're like to talking in... cows and stuff, so it doesn't feel very yeah. foreboding. You're like one of those blokes in Balloon Fight. It's great. <laughs> so... So, first design question. Here it is. Mm. Exploration is actively encouraged mm. in Beyond the Long Night. It really, really is. It's relentless to the point where uh, it doesn't beat you over the head of a hammer, but it definitely says, maybe you should go down here. I know you need to go up. I know you mm. want to go up. Well, maybe you go down here. Like, well, why do I want to do that? I'm meant to be going up. I was told to go up. Yeah, but, you know, who knows? Well, it might be down there. And I'm just thinking, how have you found rewarding the player for this behaviour? Mm. When, you know, infusing the game with this positive reinforcement of a certain behavioural trait. Mm. What have you done to encourage them without beating them over the head with the stick? I think um, simply like, so because it's an upgrade based game, um, so you can like as you travel around each each run like you're you're kind of building your character to make sure that you're strong enough to to get through into the uh the later areas which get pretty chaotic um and without going around and kind of picking up um upgrades and building your character that can become quite difficult and stuff um so the way I kind of like to think about it is that, you know, there's lots of there's lots of puzzle rooms and stuff that you might not know the answer to when you first go in, but the longer you play, you'll kind of like discover the answer and that it actually ends up being really easy to kind of beat those puzzle rooms once you know kind of like how to do them. Um, and I kind of see it as a, it's almost like a form of meta progression in a way, like um, in a game like Hades where... You know, the, just each time you go back into the run, you'll just get a little bit stronger because you'll put your points into stuff. Um, with Beyond the Long Night, instead of doing it that way, it kind of works where the more that you kind of figure out how each bit of the game works, the easier you're going to find it to get more upgrades and get stronger and get more health and stuff to kind of propel you further into the game. Um, so it's 
it's almost a meta progression that rewards the player um, for paying what kind of getting better at the game. So the better you get at the game, you you will get that um, those rewards kind of given to you, which is I, I don't know. I've, I feels satisfying to me. Um, I hope it is anyway. Um, yeah, I can vouch for that. Initially started playing, I did, I did terribly, but then. <laughs> When you start to go, maybe, just maybe, I should dodge. That's a good idea, Chris. I mean, you've got this little left button on your shoulder, shoulder on your Steam Deck. Why aren't you using it? Maybe I should. So, yes. Which leads me on to my next question. Knowing where you are, and I was a floating man with some balloons. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, physics isn't really a big thing in this world. But let's move on. <laughs> where you... um. Uh, where you are in relation to the enemies that float around you. It's very important you know where you are mm. in relation to... As any twin-stick shooter, we all know Geometry Wars, that was its that was its key strength. Know where you are in relation to everything else. Mm. Easier said than done, of course, because mm. you're more focused on what you're shooting at than yourself. Mm-hmm. So, which is what twin-stick shooters are about. You have to have two eyes sort of split <laughs> between the two, which is not possible. How have you found designing the creatures and the rooms, the procedurally generated rooms, mm. um, knowing this to be a key point of the gameplay, that uh, the player must know where they are at all times of all the hazards around them mm. whilst trying to reduce the risk of harm to them by destroying everything. Mm. How have you found making sure that the design of each environment, you know, leans into that Mm. well so each room of of the um of the game is um handcrafted in a way so they are they're kind of layouts that are all kind of like all jumbled around and then um spat out into like the room generation algorithm so um so one key part of it is that each room is learnable um so when you first go into a room you may not know where all of the traps are like originally without kind of scanning around but after enough playtime you kind of learn the room layouts and and learn where the traps are and and therefore have a bit of a better idea of how to kind of to get through each each particular challenge um a uh another so one one thing we had from play testers and stuff is is when we had kind of an enemy pop up next to you when you had been paying attention to like something else um kind of like on the other side of the screen where you're shooting and stuff so with quite a lot of enemies um we've tried to make sure that like when they get into their attack state um we've we've slowed them down and we've made them kind of there's like a for instance there's there's a an enemy called the the uh, puffer bee which is a bee that starts up very small and then just moves towards you and then gets incredibly big and then shoots um a pellet at you and to try and kind of combat them sneaking up too much on you because they are very small and they're very easy to miss um we've made them get much bigger than they did originally um, in the first draft of the game. We also made them kind of do that from much further away. So you kind of get that little warning of like, hello, I'm over here and I'm going to, I'm going to cause you a really bad time in like one second. You better move. Um, Yeah. And kind of like little tricks like that, just to 
make sure that whenever there is a little bit of a gotcha, um, we try to slow it down a little bit and and make it so you have a little bit more reaction time. Um, but yeah, it's always kind of like a fine tuning pro process with that because as a creator, um, you know, I I know all of these rooms very well um, and balancing for kind of that is always a terrible idea because it will be like way, way, way too difficult. Um, so we've really just gone off like our beta testers and our play testers and try to find a balance between, um, you know, something that is feels unfair and something that feels like a good challenge and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm very mindful to make sure that it is challenging, but we're, we're trying to make sure that it doesn't feel too unfair at any particular point. No, no, like I said, you're rewarded for skillful play. Exactly, generally. yes. You're rewarded for knowing what you can do um, and what you can't do and also what the threats are. And you say the creatures get more and more obscure and strange in how they interact mm. with you. They start off quite benign, these little blue, little like green creatures flying around mm. and do swoop in on you. And you have mm. to. That's where. That's why I learned dodging. Like, oh, mm. maybe if I dodged, they can't do that. Well, they can, but they they swooped in on something that's not there anymore. So there you go. Yeah, that's how I got out of that that mess. And it's also like it's it's super important to try and make sure that all of the enemies have a really like easy to learn attack pattern. Yes. Also, to make sure that it is something that is recognizable, so that you can sort of like see that coming. And learn. Okay, I know when it does this, it's going to do this. So let's let's shift out of the way um, and stuff. Uh, whenever it telegraphs an attack, the power ups and enhancements in Beyond the Long Night do tend to encourage the player to change their approach when traversing through the world and engaging in enemies. Hmm. As an example, there's one power up which you can used to shoot things that are shooting at you and you shoot their bullets and they explode. I used that quite a lot when the bees were doing their thing mm. and they see there was a threat and now it's like, come on then, now, now, shoot and then they'll, then I'll shoot back and explode, cause damage, it's great. Mm -hmm. Could you talk us through some of the design of those, the design approach and how one aspect of the design fed into the mm. overall experience of Beyond the Long Night? Yeah, I mean, so at a very, very early stage, um, I wanted to make sure that those upgrades um, were infinitely stackable. Um, and what that means is that um, if you find 20 speed upgrades um, during your run, if that's the only upgrade that you find, you will move with the speed of 20 upgrades. Um, I wanted that to be kind of a core principle so that you know, there was this very kind of this rare chance of runs where just stuff goes completely out of whack um, and you are stupidly overpowered because you kind of stacked one upgrade on top of it itself. Um, so that was kind of like a core early um, decision. Um after that, I think I focused on just making a few kind of key effects. So we made sure that 
um, there was an effect that, um, you know, shot down bullets, the one that you said. Um, we made sure that you could stun enemies. Um, we made it so you could burn them um, and kind of create a, a few um, kind of status effects that could then be built upon. Um, so one of my... And then, sorry, and then after that... Um, Kind of now, when I'm looking at upgrades, I'm looking at the full list and I'm thinking, okay, what aspects of the game could we enhance and what could we add synergies to, which would, um, you know, kind of build a new line out of one mechanic. Um, so kind of like one of my favourite groups of upgrades is um, there's a bunch of... They're called passive upgrades in the game, and there's a bunch of ones which do an effect when you come into contact with an enemy. Um, so they'll do something like they'll stun the enemies um, around you when an enemy comes and hits you. Um, now that on itself is pretty bad because you have to get hit in the process. But then there's a bunch of upgrades which allow you to do a dodge attack into an enemy or to become immune for a period of time and then kind of combining those two things suddenly turns that original one which was a, a bit lame because you needed to take damage for it into something that's super duper powerful because now your um, attack not only does it um, deal a lot of damage but it also stuns the enemy for like a few seconds and stuff which is a really powerful effect um so yeah kind of now we have a baseline of of lots of different mechanics in the game it's it's all about looking at okay what things are people not not doing a lot of in the game how can we make um those aspects more fun um how can we make them more chaotic um and how can we make you feel more powerful in in other areas and it does a fantastic job of that um, but it's that when you're making power-ups in these games like this it can turn things off kilter if one is mm. careful but then again that in some ways that is the joy of a roguelike like the some of the best runs in something like the binding of isaac is when you are stupidly overpowered and stuff like it's always good to have that like one in 20 like you're just gonna completely ace this and you feel incredibly powerful because as long as it doesn't happen every single run um they're always kind of like the joys of uh pulling the slot machine that is a roguelike i guess yep forever chasing that that awesome go and an awesome run yeah it's, exactly uh, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a, it, it certainly is attractive Last question then. I know, all good things must come to an end. I <laughs> think it's a good thing. The sound design mm. in Beyond the Long Night is extremely informative. Mm. Sounds a bit strange, but let me <laughs> expand. As in terms of what the player is doing, where they are, and what they're encountering. Why did you... And now I know why, because you revealed at the beginning of the show. How did this become the dominant aspect of of Beyond the Long Night? Because that's it. Really is. I mean, to everything down to the balloons hitting the ceiling. To it, just, just everything has a very defined, very detailed soundscape to it. And I'm just you know, not common, not not to this level, mm. not to this depth. 
So how have you found infusing that kind of, you know, experience into a game like this? Well, um, so obviously, I, I, as I mentioned at the start of the, the podcast, I, I used to work at, at Frontier Developments as an audio programmer. Um, Beyond the Long Nights made by three people, um, and the other two were sound designers. So, <laughs> so I... <laughs> we're we're an audio heavy team and yeah we 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 do want to make sure that if if nothing else um it's gotta sound good um but yeah so we 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 all come from like a an audio background and like it was it was important to me at the start that the game felt very tactile um that there was kind of like a mesh of um kind of real world sounds in there for all of the um the monsters and for the physics and stuff like that in the game as well as um there being kind of like some um kind of retro callbacks in there there's a bit of like callbacks to retro games in the soundtrack more than anything um but yeah i mean like we we do we do hope that we make a good sound uh, a good sounding game being where we've come from really so um yeah it was always a a, a huge priority for us to make sure that was good i'm extremely grateful for it this is why i wanted to raise it as a point mm. it's and it's very deep multi-layered and very subtle very mm. subtle everything from when you're burning the uh the the uh, the needles and like, mm. all the uh, and those spike things you can just set fire to them it's mm. great when i discovered that like i wonder if i can oh i can mm. <laughs> and through to like i said when you the balloons are bumping into things and mm. you didn't have to do that but you mm. did yeah you know? we did have to do that <laughs> actually no you did you did didn't you i'm being silly but uh, no and even the creatures like the the the, the uh, bees and stuff they make them mm. um, menacing sounds when they approach you so um beyond the long night was developed by uh noisy head games now i've got to ask where's that come from as you've got a pretty good idea but where's the yeah i think from? you know <laughs> yeah yeah it makes sense um there's, there's um there's, yeah 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 i mean like so it it kind of came from um I I kind of wanted to have a studio name that could also be a character in a way um and there was you know there was something about a character with their heads is just something else really stuck out and I think I'd played like Lone Survivor recently um before that where there's like the man with a cardboard box on his head um is in that game and that obviously harks back to pyramid head and stuff in in silent hill so i think i just thought well i like noisy things and you know my my head can sometimes feel like ideas are going a million miles an hour and stuff like that so it feels quite noisy so noisy head just kind of fit really yeah i can relate to the last bit Mm. she wouldn't do that but it does so and uh, yes, yeah, so yes, beyond light is that beyond the long night, uh, published um, by uh, Yogscast Games as well, and made by Noisy Head Games. Mm-hmm. Steve, can you tell us what platforms is it going to be available on? 
uh, PC, uh, Windows, and Mac uh, to start off with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just uh, thanks for, for for sharing that. And um, Steve, you've been a terrific guest. Really have. Oh well, thank you been for very, having me, Chris. Very, very open and honest about your trials and tribulations of making Beyond the Long Night. It's been it's been wonderful. And um, you're more than welcome to come back. Talk about what's next cooking in your brain. Mm-hmm. That's very noisy, apparently. <laughs> and um, uh, but uh, but until then, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canerinse.com. Mm-hmm.